welcome to the first episode ever of the Mastication of Education podcast. Christopher Schwartz is an American doctoral student at KU Leuven in Belgium and a journalist in Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia. His PhD is in philosophy of journalism, and as a journalist, he has been working in counter-disinformation. Chris is also an old friend of mine from our undergraduate days at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. Okay, so I know a lot of people might think philosophy is, I guess, a dying art or subject. Um, I know me and you disagree. I consider you one of the few real philosophers I know. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So I would, uh, I'd start with this. What, what, um, what got you into philosophy? Yeah, it's interesting to ask that question because I think for a lot of people who go deep into philosophy, what what gets them into philosophy is not necessarily what keeps them in philosophy over time. So what got me into philosophy was I was kind of looking for therapy. Um, so I had a I had a rough upbringing, um, and uh, in general, I'm also a sensitive person, and I was really searching for the proverbial meaning of life. Um, and that's what got me into it. What's your um, specific niche in philosophy? Well, now that at the PhD level, um, the PhD itself is philosophy of journalism. But this is like an umbrella category for stuff involving rhetoric, uh, communications, more broadly. Um, I do a lot of work on what you might call the metaphysics of the audience, like what is an audience and how does it come into being? Uh, I do a lot of work on social linguistics of news and also what is news? What do we mean by that? Um, And when it's done, because a lot of my journalistic work has been about this information, I think I'm going to move forward philosophically uh, into the realm of disinformation, not even just what is disinformation, but also like what's happening philosophically in disinformation. What are the problems that it poses? Uh, how can it be addressed from the philosophical perspective and so on? That sounds like it's something that could be a new niche, the philosophy of disinformation. Well, it, so, so um, philosophy and rhetoric are, depending on your tradition, either old friends or old enemies. If you're from the Chinese tradition, you're old friends. And if you're from the Western or Islamic tradition, they're old enemies. Um, and propaganda sort of occupies this kind of niche space, this in-between space between philosophy and rhetoric, um, depending on how you understand what those terms mean. And disinformation also potentially occupies this kind of in-between space. You know, it's a, there's a big open question, is, dis- is disinformation the same as propaganda? Is it something distinctive? Uh, Etc. But one thing is for sure is that it definitely involves uh, means of persuasion, and it involves epistemology. So, what is justified true belief? Um, so that's where sort of philosophy and rhetoric meet on this issue. So I wouldn't say necessarily that it's um, a new area. I would say it's been around really since the beginning. Um, uh, but it's been somewhat implicit very often in, in, in conversations about persuasion and truth. Well, uh, just to go back, was rhetoric uh, more on the Chinese or the Western side and philosophy more on the Chinese or the Western side? 
Um, so in, in the Western tradition, which is also basically the Islamic tradition, because they also have a lot of the same roots, um, philosophy and rhetoric are like opposed to each other. The idea is that philosophy is really concerned with truth and rhetoric is concerned with persuasion and that these two do not go hand in hand. That it's possible to persuade people of false things um, and uh, philosophy doesn't do that, right? Philosophy is always supposed to be about what is true. And this is the famous uh, incident when Socrates is accused of being a sophist because the sophists were like trained rhetoricians whose like job it was was to persuade people of any position. And as Socrates himself said, they were specialized in making the weak argument strong and the strong argument weak. So they could even like be almost like the anti-philosophy. In China, this wasn't um, this wasn't exactly the same kind of um, setup. It, it was believed that from the start, rhetoric is philosophical, right? That um, there is such a thing as improper rhetoric, uh, unhealthy rhetoric, which is engaged in falsehood. But proper rhetoric, proper um, uh, healthy rhetoric is philosophical. It's about truth. And what you're doing is you're persuading people of truth. Um, this idea is actually there in the ancient origins of Western philosophy, where uh, people don't get persuaded of, to lies, right? They don't say, oh, I like that lie. I believe in that lie, right? Not unless there's something very seriously psychological happening to them, something, you know, which is, which is what's happening to this information. That's one of the reasons why it's philosophically interesting. But people are persuaded that what they think is the truth, right? Now Taken Jesus and uh, the Gospels actually had uh, had some discussions about the sophists. Um, I, 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 if I remember, he I don't remember if he mentioned sophists specifically, you know, in the the Greek translations. But I, if I, like I said, if I'm not mistaken, he referred to the Sadducees, Pharisees, more or less, as uh, as sophists. So I mean, I think something that, something like that. I mean, it was in the, it was in the cultural atmosphere. Uh, if you were Jewish at the time, you had some familiarity with the whole Greek tradition. Mm -hmm. Greek terms are all over uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, they're even apparently like sort of just like how English, a lot of uh, a lot of contemporary English actually is weirdly translated Hebrew through the King James Bible. Apparently, you also have that back then where there's like a lot of just Greek phrases that get translated into Hebrew and sort of morph some of the grammar from what I understand. So I don't also recall him saying they were sophists per se, but he he basically made some argument to the to the, the equivalent that they make the weak argument strong and the strong argument weak and that they are untruthful, right? Uh, deceptive um, and that they abuse like um, so in both philosophy and rhetoric, there's a concern about fallacies, fallacious arguments. And what is a fallacious argument? And there's the fallacy of authority, which is the most famous of the fallacies. And the idea is that just be, you know, just because a person has uh, expertise or has a position doesn't automatically mean that they speak the truth. But that's basically what uh, Jesus was accusing uh, the Jewish authorities at the time, that they were basically engaging in the fallacy of authority because they had this priestly authority, they had access to the truth. And by the way, it's not for nothing that the early Christians, or the Nazarenes, um, one of the ways they, they appeal to Greek audiences to try to convert to the young young Christianity was to compare Jesus to Socrates, mm. right? Both in the way they, they died, that they kind of willingly went for to their unfair execution, right? Uh, and also in this, this kind of rhetorical notion that uh, they also were fighting against untruth and the, the, the prevalence of untruth. 
I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of times Jesus draws the parallels to, um, you know, the other sun savior figures like Horus or Krishna. But when you think about it, it's very similar to the story of Socrates. And you really think about that, but you know, when people are drawing parallels. Then you... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not so hot. I'm not so strong rather on, um, early Christian history, but I've, I've read that this was apparently, this comparison was often made by missionaries, and it made a certain amount of sense to Greek audiences, that Jesus was sort of a divine Socrates, you know, yeah. very, very analogous. Jesus, uh, Socrates also, of course, talked about his daemon, that he had this, like, inner voice that he was obeying, and that he had this divine mission from the Oracle of Delphi. So there's a lot there that if you're, you know, you, know, you want you want like you know neoclass uh, not neoclass uh, late antiquity Greeks to like sign up to your religion. There's a lot there you can appeal to. You know, comparing comparing these two people. Yeah, back to the uh, the, the philosophy of disinformation. As I, I think this is fascinating. Now, is there any current standard in journalism for or or any field of philosophy where it's like okay, this is considered a legitimate source and this is considered you know illegitimate or fake is how's how's the measuring of that okay wow that's that's a huge topic um i mean this is this is actually a topic that is not just in philosophy journalism it's actually a big issue in history the whole provenance question with different traditions of history having different approaches to this islam has this famous thing with um not just the hadith or the tarikh, it's also this, they call it isnad, this chain of, of sources. You can link, link it back. Um, and also Islamic historians had to deal with the fallacy of authority problem because oftentimes they had to root things back to, you know, the, the companions of Muhammad. And um, uh, this, this, is, this poses a problem when the companions disagree. Which authority do you believe? And, you know, right. Um, so this is an issue that humanity in general has been working on for a long time. Occam had these four standards of what should be considered a valid source. Today, um, it's a bit on a case-by-case basis. So you you do want you do want to. So first off. You do, you do want to consider the authority of the source. You don't want to rely only on the authority of the source, but you want to consider the authority of the source. What is the track record of the source? Um, does the source have uh, a, a reasonable amount of times that it's demonstrated itself to be, broadly speaking, truthful? That's the tricky part, right? Because different people will have different senses of what truth is. If you're a tabloid audience, you have one approach. If you're a broadsheet audience, you have another point. If you're a libertarian or right-wing audience, you have another. You have another sense of what truth is. If you're left-wing or liberal, you know. So that's the tricky part uh, in terms of what does truthfulness look like, um, and also what does good faith action. So is is even when the authority was not being truthful or making a mistake, was can we still we still perceive a good faith effort on their part to be truthful, right? Um, so that's one thing you want to consider. Another thing you want to consider is if the claim is being attested to by multiple sources, right? Um, and if it's being attested to more or less in the same way, which is a, a potential fallacy of consensus. But again, you, you know, you 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 got to you got to work with it, right? You got to. So 
for example, uh, what just happened in Ukraine with the Russians bombing this maternity hospital, it was attested to by multiple sources on the ground, right? Multiple people recording the incident happening, and then multiple news sources around the world, including news sources that necessarily were not uh, against the Russian position, right? So like even Indian news networks were saying, oh boy, the Russians just bombed this maternity hospital, you know? Um, so, um, and uh, so, so you have this, you have this a variety of sources reporting on it. And the flip side of this is sometimes also paying attention to who is not reporting it, right? So the Russians at first didn't even report that this happened, and then they uh, claimed it was a lie, right? And that itself is another important indicator of truthfulness of the source, right? Um, so there's like a broad consensus that this happened, and this happened a certain way, and then the the, the actual um, culprit, if you will, at first is like trying to like pretend it didn't even happen. And then when they do say it happened, they come up with a story that's hard to believe when you look at the variety of sources. Um, then you have other issues that come into play. Like, of course, you have the distance of, of the source to the event, right? Who are you more likely going to believe? A citizen journalist who's there recording the hospital getting bombed or CNN reporting that a citizen journalist has you know, and then you're like, okay, well, let me see the video from the, social, the citizen journalist. Can I hear the citizen journalist speak? You know, same thing for Fox News. Okay, thanks, Fox News. Thanks for telling us that this happened. But can we see it? And can we, like, get to know some of the people who, who are saying they saw it? You know, that's another standard. Uh, and on it goes, you know, um, this is also when you start entering the area of evidence. What qualifies as evidence? How do you evidence things? It gets, it gets complicated fast. <laughs> But this is some of the things already you can think about uh, as an audience, as a journalist, as a philosopher, as an historian, about trying to, you know, reasonably verify that uh, a source is, is authentic and is tending to something authentic. And this is the conundrum we have, because like you, I agree that the citizen journalist on the ground who's close to the event is more than likely your most reliable source, especially like you said, when you have a chain of them all reporting very similar stories. But Unfortunately, as we know, most people are getting their news from the same sources, CNN, Fox, um, Washington Post, uh, you know, Reuters, Associated Press, whatever, or, you know, in different countries, whatever their uh, mainstream news sources, whether it's, you know, BBC, uh, CBC, what, um, you know, RT, whatever. <clears throat> and uh, what I was hoping is, you know, when YouTube first came out, uh, that was probably, what, 2006-ish? Yeah. I thinking this is you know all right this is it this is where we can really have you know the new hub for citizen journalism on the ground reporting and it did seem like that the first few years like once it gets more popular that's the route it can go but unfortunately you know as we've seen is there's this you know hierarchy in the dispersion of news where even on youtube certain people that are reporting certain things have you know flat out been banned or removed um you know, you know, and as opposed to the the mainstream sources where you know they can just not report on something. Well, yeah, I mean, the power structure of social media is a big issue. Different political factions and demographics have been bothered by it at different points when it went against their interests, right? So. Um, Left-wingers were bothered by it for a while. 
because they they saw it being colonized by mainstream you know uh, media sources that were from their perspective rather right wing um, and more left wing voices were being drowned out. Then 2016, and Trump gets elected, and then right wingers are reporting the same thing but from a different perspective, right? <laughs> um, there's statistical evidence that goes both ways, right? Uh, what everyone can agree on is that uh, these private entities do have a disturbing level of power. I think about recently how Facebook has announced that they're going to allow um, content that promotes violence against Russians to now be disseminated on their various platforms. Wow. And the whole thing, as a journalist and as a philosopher, I'm just confused by this. At, yeah. Not to mention trouble. So first off, I'm like, what do you mean by violence against Russians? Like shootings or like what? Wow. Do, do you mean civilians? Do you mean soldiers? Like what what do you mean? Right. First off. Second off, what do you mean by violence? Do you mean military violence? Third off, is this supposed to be open source intelligence? Are you trying to facilitate the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion? Is that what's going on? But do they need you? Right? Are are you really the platform that they're going on? You know. <laughs> And then, of course, the big question is, oh, no, before I get to the big question, another issue is I don't particularly think you were censoring them to begin with. You know, there was a lot of stuff I saw floating around on Instagram and Facebook. I mean, I, I, I don't have the impression that you really were censoring this, which leads to the next big question, which is I'm pretty shocked that you're censoring things, you know, right. like I, and that now you've deemed that in this particular case, it's OK to promote to, to permit posts promoting violence against Russians, whatever the hell that means, oh my you know, goodness. so it's problematic, but it's also not black and white. A lot of good stuff still makes its way onto YouTube. A lot of good stuff still exists on TikTok, which is basically an extension of Chinese intelligence. <laughs> I know. Right. So you, so the, this is why people don't like to think because thinking is hard, but the reality is when you're dealing with media sources, you have to think you have to, you have to, weigh these different power structures in place. Okay, TikTok is an extension of Chinese intelligence, but for some reason it's allowing a lot of Ukrainian propaganda. Is that an oversight? Is that because they don't want to be seen that they're being pro-Russian? Is the company worried about something? You know, you got to think about this, right? And uh, and obviously audiences don't want to do that because they just, they just want their news. You know, right. Just give us the damn news. <laughs> the reality is news is not that straightforward. There's this myth that audiences often have that there's out there somewhere is just the facts. You know? And it's crazy that you mentioned that, you know, about uh, what Facebook's doing. I mean, yeah, that was news to me. I, I had no idea about that. And, you know, that's that's only going to further, you know, no matter what side of the fence you're on in the political spectrum, that, that that's just going to keep, you know, pushing people further away from thinking you're a legit source of news and information, especially when... Um, you know, the trucker convoys happening in Canada, you know, and they're getting rid of all sorts of posts about it. They're banning, uh, you know, fundraising platforms, you know, across different social medias. But now you're going to say, OK, we're going to promote violence against Russians. And it's just like, yeah, this seems <laughs> you're banning a peaceful protest and that promoting violence. It's like this is kind of a people are seeing the narrative. Like, I mean, I mean, the last time I checked, you know, Nazis are still allowed to have their own discussion groups on Facebook. Right. Right. And neo-Nazis very often are calling for exterminations of people. 
you know, but but the but the I don't agree with the truckers. I think the truckers uh, are are uh, very mistaken and have a lot of bad beliefs, but yet they are somehow subject to censorship because what I see with the truckers is it's true that they may have crossed their own lines, but at the end of the day, these just look like just angry citizens to me, right? Um, I don't have to agree with their ideology. I think they can, I could believe that they've gone too far from a, a, a peace and order perspective, but why why should they be censored? You know, like they, they should, you know, why do I, why do I hear what they have to say instead? Maybe that might actually calm things down if they felt that that people who weren't people who were opposed to them were still listening to them and being like, yeah, okay, you know, it's true that these mass mandates are just completely chaotic, you know, for example, and and the vaccine things is really affecting your ability to do your job. That's that's I hear you, brother, you know, and then you turn around and like you know some genuinely insane radical extremist group can go ahead and still have its Facebook, you know, uh, posts, or I'm. Frankly speaking, Tucker Carlson, one of the most toxic media personalities we have in the United States right now is Tucker Carlson, who like basically um, always finds a way to um, uh, completely twist and pervert the facts. But he can go ahead and do whatever the heck he wants on Instagram. You know, I can go ahead. And, I can't listen to one of these truckers, but I can listen to him. Former you know. anchor <laughs> now on Fox. It's, yeah, I, that's a hell of a delivery he has. There's something about that. He's always, you know, just, just the way he's, uh, he's almost hypnotizing. You know, like yeah, I Yeah, he's hypnotizing because he's got this, like, nasally <laughs> know-it-all edgelord thing going on. I see how he's people... Super entitled. You almost, like, can't... Like, I, I guess it depends on if you agree with him or not. But if you don't agree with him, um, like I don't, uh, he's hypnotic in this like entitled sense. You're just like, how could this guy purport to be the voice of the people? You know, <laughs> you know, he's so good at convincing people that he is. Yeah. I gotta, because yeah, I'm not. Because like I said it's you know I, I just feel you know him for example. You know, just another talking head, one from one side of the fence to the other. Um, he's actually I, example of that. Um, you know, a future of citizen journalism as far as a future of vetting water legitimate sources. Do you think there's any existing platforms, maybe a, like a newer one that's like a newer version of YouTube, such as Rumble, that's not, you know, as popular? Or do you think there's something that completely needs to be redone where, you know, like an intelligent citizen can start sharing information with fellow citizens being like, yeah, this platform's legit. This is this is the I, way to run out. My honest answer to this Um, so my PhD is a lot about what is journalism and what I argue is that you need to think of an audience and an audience here is basically synonymous with whatever scale of collective you want, whether it's a, a fan community or it's a nation or it's all humanity, right? You, you can scale it up or scale it down, whether it's, you know, they, whether it exists for a few minutes or for centuries, right? But an audience is essentially kind of a big person made of a, a bunch of smaller people it doesn't obviously it's um it's sort of a construct right it's not uh not literally a big person it's not literally a big mass mind but it has features of actual subjectivity that somehow is being created by this interlinking of all these little subjects that are part of it so the individuals who are part of the audience and this big subject that is the audience have certain cognitive and emotional needs 
right? Because just like a person being lost in the wilderness, the audience is essentially lost in the wilderness, right? One of those pressing needs is um, to be able to comprehend and articulate experience itself, right? A philosopher actually comes in after the fact. A philosopher helps the, the audience uh, uh, develop a sound judgment about their experience. But first, they need to know what the hell are they experiencing, right? Um, and that is what journalism is. Journalism is the provision of that. The good news is there's a lot of ways that journalism can exist as a result. And a lot of different people who can do journalism, not just professionals, but citizens. And probably one day even algorithms, right? And probably different kinds of people uh, different kinds of journalists, rather, will be will be needed for different tasks within journalism, for instance, right? So maybe a citizen, citizen journalist is really the best kind of person you want to go to to actually, like, get the event in itself, to capture it, you know, live, right? But they may not be the one you want to turn to to help you understand what's going on, right? Because they're just a person on the ground. They're seeing the Russians bomb or... Uh, the, the hospital, right? They don't necessarily know about the broader geopolitics or whatever. Or if they do, they might have a very partisan perspective on it. And that's when you may want to then turn to, like, a news anchor who then interviews an expert on the geopolitics, for example, right? right. You know, and then maybe one of the algorithms will help us process, you know, uh, you know, huge live feeds from multiple, multiple different uh, citizen journalists on the ground, for instance. So, so, so the future bodes very well for audiences that get more and more high quality uh, information, both in raw and processed form. But we're not there yet. Uh, we seem to have to pass through a phase in which journalism needs to shed its sort of original skin, right? Um, which was as these nine to five job institutions and industry, really, right? Uh, that was personified or typified by the newspaper. And then later on by the, you know, the mass media company, the ABC, the CBC, the NBC, right? NPR or BBC in, in Britain. Um, now it's shedding and it hasn't yet sort of revealed what its ultimate form will be. Um, but its ultimate form will almost certainly be multi-platform. There will not be any one platform that will help us pull this off, at least not for a while. Um, and... Um, I don't see the problems being uh, capable of being solved by a single platform. So there are up and comers, there are rivals to YouTube and Instagram and, you know, et cetera. Um, whatever they help facilitate, they also will create new problems. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I don't think uh, we're anywhere near where we, where we need to initially be with journalism. And honestly, um, we're probably not going to get there in this century. I mean, <laughs> like, Putting aside the whole issue of audience literacy, there's, all, there's the underlying question about technology itself. Like, there's like some crazy science fictional things that might be coming that will eventually help us see what the true form of journalism is supposed to be. Because also audiences themselves, like how an audience goes about getting its cognitive and emotional needs met may also change as technology advances. So there is yeah, basically what you're saying is there's some sort of method or mechanism that we can't even conceive of right now that may actually become the new forefront of, uh, of journalism. Uh, so, so, so let me tell you two things ahead of mind. So first off, right, um, 
we have had some glimmers of what happens when an audience actually can, um, what's what I'm looking for, like really extend itself as a group and, 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 and act as a group. And these are drones, drones or space satellites. So you have like a mission control, right? And the mission control is an audience, essentially. It's a, it's a collective, right? Um, and they are like operating through this robot, essentially. That could be a glimmer of what may eventually come. Maybe an audience will like somehow technologically be able to like overcome its dependence on these fallible human beings and can almost can kind of itself directly, you know, okay, we're here and on this planet and we need to like get the news on that planet. You know, another idea, and again, this is very science fiction. Another I idea I've had is um, we don't know what uh, uh, technological possibilities that will exist once we begin to sort of crack things like time and space better than we are right now. Right. Right now, we're still very constrained by time and space. But what happens thousands of years from now when we may be less constrained by it? When we can go back in time, go back in time or just like, ah, I want to go check out Mars now and you zip over you know like what happens in uh orson scott card's enderverse the enders game uh series uh, the the alien species they initially are, are at war with have an ability to communicate um instantaneously across time and space and we don't know how they do it for a while until the third book when we realize that what they do is they sort of access another dimension that basically allows them to side mentally sidestep time and space right Imagine the journalistic possibilities of something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so to bring us back down to Earth, um, um, we are we are still very far away from seeing what the kind of the ultimate form of journalism will be, and hence how these questions of sourcing and evidencing and authority will play out in the long run. Now, as far I'm hoping you remember this because you you had presented this to me probably about a dozen years ago. This idea you had, um, I remember you were talking about a um, almost like a a, a peer to peer uh, uh, journalism system mm -hmm. where it was, you know people on the ground would be able to have you know like an encrypted uh, application to do communication over. Um, I mean, if you, I, I thought that was a very good idea. Mesh networking. It was basically a variant of mesh networking. So mesh networking is the idea is that um, uh, you don't need the broader system infrastructure around you. You only need the devices in your hands. And then you can create like essentially a miniature internet. It's kind of Bluetooth on steroids. Um, and then uh, with some minimal infrastructure, what they call extenders, you sort of scatter these things across an urban space, for example, you could essentially create a kind of amorphous, moving, self-creating, internet between all the devices in a particular area. Um, the citizen journalism potential of that is like, is, is hard to, hard to fathom. Again, there, we're far away from being able to pull off that technology. Yeah, say, so is there anything today that exists that's similar to that, that you know? Mesh networking does exist. The mesh networking does exist. It's, it, they have accomplished it uh, at certain communal levels, um, but it hasn't really reached this like rapid action, amorphous, you know, an earthquake hits uh, a city, all the telecommunications infrastructure is dead, but people still have battery power on their phones. They all just turn on this app and suddenly, boom, there's like this little mini internet, internet there between each other. We haven't yet reached that point. Um, 
for various different uh, reasons involving single strength and typology and yeah. Yeah, as far as that exists today, like, well, like what would it take for me and you, for example, to have a network like that? Like what would we need or what would we need to do? So right now I'm in Kyrgyzstan and you're in America. So to be able to make a mesh that would connect me to you is a pretty massive undertaking. <laughs> you, you need meshes. Part of the problem is how, how do you define the, the boundaries of a mesh? But you would need a chain of meshes essentially between me to you which would be possible if we were in the same landmass. It's theoretically possible in the same landmass if you were in France and, and I was here in Kyrgyzstan. But across the Atlantic Ocean, now it becomes hard to escape the need for uh, larger infrastructure. This is essentially, mesh networking is essentially um, a manifestation of the concept of citizen infrastructure, right? Which is the idea of decentralized infrastructure. So you don't need uh, state or corporate authorities to do your infrastructure for you. I say yes. How would you explain like mesh to you know mesh networking to someone who's not familiar with it at all? Just think of it as a miniature internet that exists only between devices. Okay. Essentially, right? Um, and um, uh, so there's three people in a room, and they turn off their Wi-Fi, turn off the mobile data, but turn on this Bluetooth on steroids. They can connect to each other and do whatever they want with with each other. If someone wanted to uh, uh, crack into their little mesh and see what they were doing, they'd either have to be a member, they have to be like an undercover member of that mesh, uh, or they'd have to have, they'd have to be like standing outside the house and have some special technology to basically break into the signal from outside. And I remember, I, I could be wrong, but I remember when you explained it to me years ago, even if let's say, you know, the NSA or KGB or, you know, any sort of hacker was able to hack into a, a mesh network communication, say between me and you, they would only be able to hack between our conversation, right? It wouldn't get all the other people in the mesh, would it? It depends. It depends on the mesh is built. Um, it depends on what kind of encryption and handshakes you have inside the mesh. Um, you can create a completely unsecure mesh that would... Um, so so I'm not so privy on, on how the underlying technology works. I don't know, for example, if the phone or the app needs to be able to see all the potential nodes in the mesh in order to operate, or if it only needs to know the node it's connecting to. Um, again, though, I think it depends on the kind of mesh you're, you're trying to build. I think for now, the way that the, the system in place as it is, it seems like possibly the peer review system is, at least in education, medical, and science, is more or less one of the prevailing systems to try to vet what's accurate and what's not. I know just from my experience and, you know, like when I got my adult education degree, everything that was emphasized is the peer review system. I, I, I agree with the peer review system the way it's supposed to work. It's yeah. actually not a bad system, yeah. but and you know, I mean, and anyone who can do a simple Google search into uh, the inaccuracy of peer review systems, it's, it's just simply people that are supposed to adhere to it don't adhere to it. Well, so, so peer review was a kind of reasonable solution for a different era, right? So peer review today suffers from nepotism, most for, first and foremost, right? Uh, it's very easy to work around the peer review system, either directly by you just sort of tell the person that, you know, please be my peer reviewer, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, or when it's a small enough academic discipline, they can recognize who you must be from either your writing style or your topic, 
um, or you just talk to each other about your project at some point at some conference. Nepotism is a big problem. Nepotism and, and lack of uh, lack of true blind. It's supposed to be blind, right? So a lack of a true blind. It's actually a rather transparent thing. The uh, the other uh, massive pressure on it is uh, the publisher parish model, uh, which has only been ramped up 500 percent you know, in the years since peer review sort of was instituted. So now people just don't have the time, mental energy to do a proper read of what they're supposed to be peer reviewing, to write a proper review. Um, you know, very often they're just like, okay, they do a skim and they see some problems and all it goes, you know. So, um, so it's really suffering from, from you know, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, bugs in the system combined with uh, just Time, sheer time pressure. You know, peer reviewers just don't have the time for it. Additionally, there have been some attempts to expand the pool of who could be qualified as a reviewer. So for a long time, it was you had only needed to have the, not just the, you know, the academic qualification, the PhD, but you needed to have it in that specific thing, right? Now things are loosening up a bit because they just need more people who can do it, right? So a lot of journalists I know who have only master's degrees are still, you know, they're brought in to be peer reviewers for any number of, of things, um, for instance. So, which is good, it helps to relieve the pressure on the on the possible pool, but, you know, it's uh, it's sort of a you know thumb on the on the hole of a, leak, of a leaking cargo ship or whatever the, the analogy is. So there's a lot of discussion about how peer review can be altered, whether we need peer review, and if so, how it can be altered. What are some alternatives out there? Can you citizen peer review? Can you kind of open it up to the general public to do it? Um, is it better to have a much more transparent system? Is the blind peer review system just not really viable in the end? Is it only really good in certain contexts and not others? There's a lot of stuff going on. There's one journal for a long time I've been meaning to submit to, which has a transparent review system. You know, the reviewers know who you are, you know who the reviewers are, and, and, and also all the communications between you and them are publicly available. So anyone can walk over and see what's going on. Um, and ironically, this is actually one of the journals specialize in audience studies, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about how this can be altered, fixed, should be done away with, et cetera. Um, it's not going to go away anytime soon because um, at the end of the day, academia, like any other discipline or industry, needs vetting. It needs a vetting process. It needs to make sure there's some quality control. Um, and in, in regions like in Europe, where most universities are state-subsidized, uh, these things end up becoming enshrined as actual education policy, right? And then it becomes really hard to change. Yeah, I think one thing that um, is it doesn't seem in journalism that there's really like a separate investigative, you know. Oh, so there's peer review. There's peer review of journalism. You mean. Right. Uh, well, there there is, uh, you know, to an extent, I assume. Um, um, you, you typically find something like peer review when dealing in investigative contexts. Number one. Uh, number two, there used to be sort of in-house peer review, and that was the copy editor, mm -hmm. right? So the, so the idea was that it was supposed to be a firewall between the copy editor and the rest of the editorial process. I mean, obviously, they'd be sitting on the same newsroom, but, you know, the idea was that they really were independent, and they could pull the brakes on the story. Um, copy editors often did double um, 
uh, double work as also proofreaders. And so one of the ways you can tell uh, that the copy editor of, an, of, an, of a news agency is either not there, right, or their budget has been slashed, is the presence of typos and grammatical errors in the copy. Um, I remember, I've been a fanatical reader of BBC since you and I were undergrads together. <laughs> um, and I remember when I first began to see typos in, on the BBC website, which coincided with budget cuts. Uh, and that's when I knew, oh boy, they're, they're losing their copy editors. Right. So copy editors are, used to be a, uh, an important element uh, in your average newsroom to ensure quality and to catch, capture, uh, to catch uh, plagiarism, catch people who are manufacturing sources, manufacturing quotes, et cetera, et cetera. You, you see this actually in The Wire, season five, there's, there, mm -hmm. there's, there's a copy editor. Um, so, and they, 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 they talk about this and how they try to, they start suspecting one of the journalists is basically, you know, BSing. Uh, but it's pretty much going by the way the dinosaur, because the, again, journalism also is experiencing this publisher parish sort of pressure. Uh, and copiators just slow it down and are expensive. Um, so there's been a discussion in some journalistic circles about whether you could have citizen copy editors <laughs> or can you outsource it to algorithms? What do you think of having actual professional investigators um, vetting uh, journalism and, uh, you know, whether it's citizen or professional uh, journalism? Almost? You mean a PI? Exactly. Yep. It's been done. It's been done. I don't think it's ever been standard practice, but it's definitely been done. Yeah, uh, something uh, that you know yeah. should. Sorry. No, no. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. There was a case. There was a case not not, not long ago when there was a PI who was hired by a major news institution to vet, the background check, essentially the claims of a journalist who was who they ultimately were was proven to be a plagiarizer. I don't remember which one it was, but it's ha it happens. Yeah, it's some sort of system where you have you know basically an inve an investigator and almost like a small jury you know type of body that can you know uh, tend to vet you know the the sources and the journalism itself um i mean you're never going to get something that's completely unbiased i mean everyone in this world has biases we all do but at least if you can just you know if people can do it you know the diligence of just seeing the you know the the source itself and just, you know, looking at whether that seems credible, going through some sort of a step process to see, you know, how those sources were obtained, you know. What so so part, part of the problem about any discussion about. Um, so so we're, we're moving away from the conversation about philosophy, we're moving more and more deeper into the conversation of journalism. And I'm moving, putting on, my, I'm taking off my philosopher hat and putting on my <laughs> journalism hat more and more. Um, Part of the problem we face in any of these discussions is the fact that audiences are not only woefully ignorant about the processes of journalism, but they also very often don't care. Um, uh, audiences have limited cognitive and emotional space, right? They want their news. Um, sometimes to help build that trust between the audience and a journalist or an audience and a news institution, um, uh, there needs to be transparency about the process, right? But for example, as some news institutions used to do, if you like list in a, in a given news article, everyone who was involved in what part, you know, like this article was written by so-and-so, copied by so-and-so, who changed X percentage of the article, whatever, right? You know, 
I mean, most audiences glance right over that. They don't even, they don't even, they would not, don't even notice that kind of stuff. Uh, newspapers all the time issue corrections. Who notices? Right, you know, um, some newspapers do it, you know, they just shove it somewhere in the bottom of a page. Other newspapers have dedicated pages to it, you know, like, you know, no one notices except like the most like anal retentive, you know, reader. Um, <laughs> The um, so a lot of the problems we're dealing with uh, with journalism and sourcing and trust are exactly the same problems we're dealing with with expertise and trust, institutions and trust, elections and trust. Um, is that you have a, you've had a lot of malfeasance and bad behavior on the part of those who have the power, right? Who are the journalists? or are the politician, or are the expert, or whatever. But you also have audiences that have been badly educated, miseducated very often, right? Uh, uh, have uh, self-destructive cultures, whether they're American, or Turkish, or Russian, right? Their culture is highly materialistic and focused on immediate short-term gains, you know, and often promotes uh, quick judgment and being attackative, right? Um, and in general, um, they are also hyper-stressed and are themselves dealing with a lot in their lives, uh, and they just don't have the space as individuals. So this is a deeper civilizational problem. No, just like um, um, no single platform will be able to solve this sort of issue of sourcing and the role of citizen journalists and the role of professionals, right? Uh, there is no uh, perfectly transparent journalistic, journalistic process um, that will be able, putting aside the ethical issues of being perfectly tra uh, transparent, because there's a whole issue there about you know anonymous sources and background sources, but there is no journalistic process that will be able to satisfy every audience. Some audiences are just psychopathological, hmm. right? Some audiences just are just crazy, right? <laughs> you know, again, Tucker Carlson. You know, a lot of people watch Tucker Carlson because they just they just they just want to hear the next crazy thing he has to say. <laughs> a lot of people sort of understand that it's a game. They believe in the game because they are anti-authoritarian, anti-left, whatever. They believe in the game. But I mean, if you sat down with them and said, "Do you think every single thing Tucker Carlson says is true?" Like, no, of course not. That's the point, mm -hmm. right? Do you think that Tucker Carlson's you know implicit support for Putin uh, is healthy? Like, they probably be like, "No, it, it is kind of weird." We have to admit it is kind of weird. But then you get those those Tucker Carlson supporters who like he's like he's like better than heroin or crack cocaine for them, you know. And he's like the personification of truth. And one day he will be president of the United States in their minds, you know. There is no what, what you 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 could be the New York Times and you could like give them the the most you could like you know telepathically transmit. The exact methods used to come up with this expose about Trump or Trevor Carlson himself, and they will just not, they would not, they would not, they're not gonna take it. <laughs> then now you can the truth about how you came to the conclusion in this news report right into their heads, and they'd be like, nope. Uh, so you can put your philosopher back, uh, hat back on, because with okay. that said, do you think uh, philosophy is essentially dead as a, I'd say, a mainstream subject? Far from it. 
Um, so first off, broadly speaking, whether whether it's Chinese or Islamic or Western philosophy, generally speaking, there's, there's two kinds of philosophy. There's the philosophy that deals with the existential problems, right, the problems of life, and there's the philosophy that deals with concepts, right? Um, these two go hand in hand a lot more often than uh, is realized. Um, but uh, a lot of a lot of the idea that philosophy is dead and doesn't matter and it's just books or talk or whatever is really about this philosophy of concepts, right? The what do you mean by stuff, right? And then the even more you know uh, highly speculative metaphysical stuff, symbolic logic, you know. The stuff where, um, uh, where I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't. As a philosopher, I'm like rusty and all of that. Like, it, it's some of it is really, really far out there, and that's also you often see also these deep kind of hyper nerdy, you know, navel gazy terms in philosophy as well, where like, you know, people earn entire PhDs based on the random paragraph in a letter that Heidegger wrote to his like friend's neighbor, you know, right. That's the, this philosophy concept, which is actually extremely important, but does have, unfortunately, this tendency to just wander off into, into uh, places that are just not of utility to most people, and even to other philosophers like me. Then there is this other philosophy, which is the philosophy of, of really dealing with life. And we tend to think of the Stoics and the existentialists, you know, some of the more mystical philosophers, right? Some of the more rhetorical philosophers. Right. You think of a Confucius, you think of a Marcus Aurelius, you think of, you know, a Rumi, um, you think of a, a Camus. Right. Um, so uh, that is never going to go away. Um, um, it does overlap very often with the self-help coaching industry and psychotherapy. In fact, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, that we now know today, has its origins partially in Stoic philosophy. Uh, some of the people who were originally uh, coming up with CBT were huge fans of Marcus Aurelius. Um, so, um, so it's it's not always clear whether you should actually read a book of philosophy. Should I read Epictetus or should I actually look at psychological counseling? <laughs> right, <laughs> um, right. There is this overlap there, but there's always going to be a, a, a desire for it. Um, um, Philosophy also, even if one could argue that philosophy can be replaced by psychotherapy, um, the, the truth of the matter is philosophy was, was developed as massive canon long before psychotherapy really got going, right? So there's always going to be that. So even if at some point in the future we as a society say philosophy and psychotherapy are synonymous, right, that canon is still going to be there and people are going to go to that canon as, as well, those, those books that have been written and so on. So that's never going to go away. Um, I think also the sharpness of thought that you can achieve in philosophy um, um, is hard to get in non-philosophical disciplines. Now, I work a lot with computer scientists because um, uh, uh, basically because I'm doing disinformation as a journalist. Um, you mean you, you have to deal with data? You know, you're dealing with this problem. And, there's, and definitely, these are philosophical people. Uh, computer science has a very heavy edge of logic and precise thinking and so on. So it's not to say that it's impossible outside of philosophy. But um, uh, even though I'm not a computer scientist, 
I can often hold my own or even like beat arguments with computer scientists, right? And I, I remember once meeting one computer scientist who literally said, you know, you philosophers scare me. And I was like, why? And he's like, I had no idea that cause and effect was such a problem. Right? You know, I just thought, you know, throw, throw the apple and the apple was thrown. You know, and then a philosopher is like, what do you mean by throw? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, and then you ruined it for me. You you told me about David Hume, and it was over. And now I can never believe in cause and effect again. And I'm like, well, on behalf of all philosophers everywhere, I apologize to you. You know, it's not our fault that your concepts are crap. <laughs> so, so there's a precision of thinking that comes with being being a philosopher and and a flexibility. Um, I mean, the the fact of the matter is, um, uh, you know. If I had the time or money to do it, um, uh, you know, one day probably I might just sit down and finally learn Python and turn myself into a software engineer just so I have that extra job in my back pocket. But I can do that as a philosopher. I know people, I know the philosophers have done it, and they're like, yeah, it's just like philosophy without any, any of the fun, you know, it's <laughs> basically, right? You know, we're, we're, you know, or like the fact that law schools, Law schools in America traditionally are like not so hot about pre-law programs. They'd rather recruit from philosophy departments, you know, because they figure we can teach this philosopher the stupid case law. How hard is it to memorize these stupid cases? What we can't teach is how to argue. And then, yeah, because a lot, especially in uh, education nowadays, rhetoric and logic have been, for the most part, completely removed from uh from the education system mostly it's you know writing reading mathematics science but you don't at least in k through 12 education yeah well okay so so here we come into a very interesting issue in, in sort of the history of education especially in the united states so here we come to um an interesting issue in the history of education especially rhetoric uh, what is what is called composition today is the inheritor of rhetoric right so it's, it's a bit of a complicated story but basically uh, along the way the idea of being able to think well being connected to the ability to do speak and write well uh kind of got kind of got sort of turned into a, sort of an assumption now right that's not well communicated <laughs> ironically um, uh, but is there in the background of these all these composition courses that American students just have to suffer through? Um, it has a lot of problems. A lot of people who are in rhetoric academic departments are actually analyzing these issues in terms of how composition is taught, you know, and like whether these like very like static ways of sentence structure and and you know every essay has to have three parts and blah blah blah. Whether any of this really like actually is how the human mind works. Is this really clear thinking, right? And there's, of course, big concerns that when, when you focus so much on composition, right, are you, are you actually teaching how to think or are you teaching people how to, like, just, you know, write according to a formula and stuff like this? But that's um, um, what you find today in K-12 education is often a lot of attenuated relics of, of the liberal arts education system, right? that um, have now been kind of huddled out and are also subject to a lot of pressures 
especially from federal government, the federal government about, you know, you know, performance standards and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, but it is true that um, rather consciously philosophy as such is is not taught in American schools, which largely makes American schools unusual compared to a lot of other societies um, who at least will have, if not philosophy, at least will have that rhetoric mm-hmm. uh, uh, course, for example, right? We, you, again, you do have echoes of it still, even then, not so much in philosophy, but we do get, you know, when I was at uh, uh, secondary school, we had um, a semester of, of uh, law, but I was also at a, a, a sort of an elite public school. I don't know if that was taught everywhere, like in inner city school. But we had a mock trial. We had to learn constitutional theory, and that kind of is a backdoor way into some philosophy as well. Right. You know, which I took. I took it in my last semester of secondary school. So it was one of the things that led me to actually think about doing philosophy as a major, um, because I was sort of doing this already at the secondary school level. But other than that, I mean, yeah, America does stand out in that most societies do attempt to teach some philosophy either in name only or in substance yes i remember reading uh the john michael gatto i I think that was his name his book about the um the history of american education how it was originally taken from the prussian system in modern germany and basically divide into a a device into a three-tier system you know workers you know your lawyer merchant class and then your you know your your doctor elite class um, I think that's basically just kind of carried over for over the last hundred years of what we've seen, because it's more or less just training people to go into a certain niche, a certain field, fill that role, work the machine. And that's pretty much it. Go make money. Oh, shut up. Home. We have deeper problems. So I do a lot of uh, a lot of my PhD is based on Basil Bernstein's uh, notion of social linguistic codes. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, say his name. Basil Bernstein. No, I never heard of him. Okay, so he's a very cool theorist. Um, he was a mid-20th century British, uh, no, I'm sorry, American, working in Britain. And he was wondering why were working class and poor students having such a hard time succeeding in schools? Um, and he came to a very interesting conclusion. It had to do with the way language is used in schools. So he said that there seems to be uh, two principles or codes, as he called them, by which language is used. Uh, he called it a restricted code and elaborated code. What I'm doing right now is elaborated code, right? I'm talking in a kind of odd way, if you think about it, right? I'm talking in a sort of distant way. I'm uh, talking in very complete sentences. And I'm talking in a way that, like, if there was a third person in this dialogue right now, which there will be, you know, when people watch this on YouTube or listen to this on the <laughs> podcast, um, if there was a third person, they could hear me talking to you right now and they could figure out what I'm saying. They can understand, oh yeah, he's talking about this Basil Bernstein guy. But restricted code is, is, is sort of the opposite of this. Let's say you only knew who Basil Bernstein was. And I was just saying, yeah, Bernstein's idea of this. And you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, Bernstein, right? That's, you know, that's restricted code. We've already done the work of elaborated code. We know what we're, we're, we're talking mm-hmm. about. And now we're talking this like condensed, you know, very intimate referential way, right? Mm-hmm. So every language has both codes. Right. Um, but what happens is, is that within a language community, uh, certain as certain, um, 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 I guess you could say sectors of that community 
be sort of specializing more in one than the other, right? Uh, higher education, universities tend to specialize in elaborated code, right? Um, and um, uh, if, you, if you're not going to enter into universities, it gets hard to get used to how to make use of that code. But then there is a feedback loop effect. So what happens is one generation goes into universities, they get used to how to use that code, and they, when they're at home, expose their kids to that code. And then their kids go through the school system, but because they're okay with that code, they can start using that code, they get the good grades, they go to the university, and around the amount it goes. Meanwhile, you're a lower class, working class kid, your father was, you know, whatever, wasn't one of these high fluid and educated people, um, you're not exposed to elaborated code on a regular basis. You're only exposed to it in the school. You have a very serious handicap. Now, some of you, through hard work or natural brightness, will master it and will and go on into higher education and beyond. A lot of you won't. A lot of you will really struggle. And, lot, and because the school is failing to communicate to you the significance of these codes, you don't understand why the hell you have to worry about this stuff. All you know is that somehow, if I can figure out how to speak fancy, I can go off and get a fancy degree and get a fancy job. And then when I get a fancy job, I get to call the shots. I get to decide what everyone needs to learn about in school. I get to decide whose jobs get the matter or not. And that's what's being conveyed. And I think that's also exactly. interesting, even with uh, math and science, because you know you're given you know whether it's trigonometry or. Um, you, you know, uh, chemistry, you're, you're not really taught why you're learning it. You're just, it's just thrown at you like, all right, A plus B equals yeah, C yeah. or uh, hydrogen two plus oxygen, blah, blah, blah. I remember yeah. my, I'm just like, why explain why I'm doing this? I can't yeah. see molecules. Like, why? Yeah. Let's get it. Let's dig a little deeper before we get into this as to why we're doing this. And then I think it would click more for people. I mean, okay, so I mean, I think, I think, I think, first off, what we're talking about here uh, obviously concerns why uh, politics have completely mel melted down in recent years, because the lower class and working class have had enough, um, you know, and they don't want the fancy speaking people to keep speaking fancy at them and with their fancy jobs deciding their fates. That's a lot of what this is. And, um, you know, a lot of the fancy speaking people were shocked by how unfancy Trump spoke. And they're like, how could such an ugly speaker do so well? But me, having read Basil Bernstein, I was like, oh, man, Makes this perfect. guy. <laughs> I, you know, that was one of the few people that we knew who was saying, hey, we could win. Yep. 16. I was one of the very few in our, in our fancy speaking you know, community of friends. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. Uh, we need to take this guy seriously, you know? And they're like, why are you talking about it? He's just an idiot. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he knows how to communicate to his audience. You know, say, I tell people say what you want about um, you know Bush Jr. He had you know not, yeah. but he had the same ability. He had the same ability. Nowhere near, honestly, nowhere near as potent as Trump. Yeah. Trump also was able to access rage and other feelings that that uh, Bush Jr. couldn't. But uh, but yeah, same same kind of thing. Um, so so you got that. The other thing is. Um, in general, we obviously have a problem in our society that is not being talked about, which is why do you need to get these fancy degrees? Why do you need to be able to speak fancy in order to do well in our society? Now, I'm an advocate for basic income, 
And I know that uh, libertarians, for example, would not be in favor of that. I know there's a lot of reasons why people not be in favor of that. But uh, I'm bringing that up because, you know, to me, that's a, that may be one of the ways of solving that problem, right? Uh, that you can actually have something of a decent, you know, life uh, without having to speak fancy. And maybe speaking fancy could become less exotic because it's less attached to all this pressure to succeed, you know? Um, and the third thing I just want to say, uh, if I can remember our train of thought now, <laughs> um, is um, we've lost, in America in particular, we've lost um, the ability to convey the civilizational aspect of education. So, so you have this Prussian model of education that in America intersected with the liberal arts, Protestant, English uh, tradition that we had here. Um, before that system went mass, when it was still just really for a handful of elites, frankly speaking, um, nevertheless, these elites were properly communicated with. They were told that what they were learning was, was going to help them build American civilization, and civilization broadly speaking, right? And that they would be, um, you know, the future Cicero's and Cicinatuses of, you know, whatever, right? We, we have... That is gone now. What, as the system went mass, it started becoming just throw, throwing crap at them. Here's your trigonometry. Here's your molecules. You know, you got to learn this to pass some tests, right? You know, so now it's like I got to learn this to pass some tests so I can get some fancy job. Why, why, none of this makes any sense. Why do I need to do any of this in order to like you know live? And there's no like, what's my what's my what am I participating in? What's the, what's the big thing that I'm supposed to be involved in in order to learn all this stuff? It just sounds like aimless survival. That was my, that was my three comments. Yeah, and, and it makes sense, though, that that's how people feel because in the end of the day, they got to do what they need to do to survive. So when they're not saying, you know, why do I need to learn all this fancy rhetoric and molecules that I can't see? It, it only makes sense from their point of view. I got to bring X amount of dollars to the table to get x amount of food to pay for you know i gotta pay for this electric bill rent mortgage whatever and i think what, what's become you know i want to get your opinion on it i think what's become real toxic at least mainstream uh you, you know western um media on you know especially like on youtube and uh facebook and, and all the other social media platforms is this whole hustle culture church of positivity mm -hmm. uh self-help that um it just becomes to me like actually almost more of a divide and conquer mechanism because everyone's now so self-absorbed. I got to work a hundred hours a week to make this much money by the time of the age. And, you know, if, if I didn't, this person, I just, I wasn't working hard enough or I wasn't being positive enough and it ends up making people absolutely, uh, absolutely lose it. And I think uh, that what's real sad is that's almost kind of becoming, at least in my eyes, a new form of philosophy. And, and I think that's, you know, like I said, at least in my opinion is very toxic. So yeah, if, if I may, mm -hmm. so I totally agree with you. It's toxic. And I have two, two comments on that. The first one is, um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's an issue in technology that technology, a lot of technology exists to solve problems created by technology. Right. So, you know, we have a missile defense shield, which is an amazing piece of technology. It's basically 
shooting one bullet with another bullet, essentially, right? But the missile defense shield exists because of nuclear missiles, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's around and around and around you go with it. A lot of this uh, 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 hustle culture, the self-help positivity culture, this is essentially the same thing. These are like solutions to problems created by previous supposed solutions, mm-hmm. right? And people are just not aware of it. They're just, they're just caught up in it. There's never the stop and being like, well, wait, maybe this like system of like, well, this is where this is where left wingers, right wingers would disagree. But um, um, a left winger would say maybe the system of hypercapitalism is not healthy. And right. like me, like just going balls the wall, hypercapitalist, you know, is is is, is a is a solution to the wrong problem, you know, essentially, right? Um, a right winger would probably say, well, it depends on the right wing, right? Because you have two kinds now, right? So you got the traditional libertarian or, or, or conservative approach, which would, which would be like, uh, well, the problem isn't really hypercapitalism. We don't really have capitalism, right? We, we, are, we actually have kind of crypto crony capitalism, right? And a lot of like imperfections in the system that kind of are provoking and pushing people to have to hustle. If you had genuine capitalism, maybe people wouldn't have to hustle, right? Um, and now you have this more like ethno-nationalist approach, which is actually rather socialist, uh, which you see personified by people like Trump, who are also like basic incomers, ironically enough. Um, and they would probably say that, well, the, re- you know, the real problem is that the wrong ethnic groups are, you know, uh, being favored over the right ethnic groups. Uh, you know, we're not doing enough to sort of maintain uh, the, our distinctive identity and our distinctive traditions, and you know, we need to like if we built a wall, we would not have to worry about being hypercapitalist because anyone have these ridiculous amounts of immigrants who are basically allowing wages to be driven down, blah, 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 <laughs> right? Um, all three of these things have a certain logic to it. I don't want you know, I'm a, I am a left winger, but I don't want to like just you know say I don't you know. There's, there's a logic to the right wing, um, and they're not not necessarily wrong. I, I'm a sympathetic actually in certain points. That's the, the that's the first comment though. Um, I think we I think a lot of us can see that this that the hustle and self help and self positivity is um, just a false solution to a to a problem that's produced by other false solutions. The second thing. Uh, wait, now I got lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's getting late here. Wait, it's wait. It's morning. Yeah. Um, the toxicity. Um, hmm. Well, I guess what I want to say now is um, I think what's also very bothersome about it as a philosopher. Ah, that was it. Okay, let me finish that. As a philosopher, this is is the lack of self-awareness and self-criticism that goes into it. And oftentimes, it's even a misapplication of self-criticism. Right? I'm not enough. Now, this relates back to the thing about how we often use the term philosophy. Uh, so before I said there's two kinds of philosophy, right? There's the philosophy of concepts and the philosophy of how to deal with life. But very often, people also use philosophy um, to describe belief system, right, you know, so-and-so has the philosophy of this, you know, that's your philosophy, and things like that. 
So if we're going to use the term this way, then what hustling and self-help and positivity also, I would also argue the whole, I'm going to manifest, you know, manifesting stuff, right? This new age concept. What all this points to, if you want to use philosophy as like belief system or even as an ideology, um, is a, um, is a system that fundamentally values the well-being of a few over the others. It's an oligarchy. Mm -hmm. And it's first and foremost a mental oligarchy, right? It first and foremost gets people to be focused on the wrong things in order to enable then later on the economic and then eventually political oligarchy, right? Um, it doesn't value communities or individuals. You heard left-wingers say that America today doesn't value communities. And here are right-wingers say America today doesn't value individuals. The reality is America doesn't value either. either. It values its oligarchs, its hyper-rich. Mm -hmm. That's who it values, right? And it doesn't matter it doesn't, doesn't matter, you know, what it will take, whatever, you know, sometimes we now have to be a bit more anti-individual, sometimes we have to be now a little bit anti-community. What matters is whatever it is that keeps these people in power, right? And the deeper problem is that it's not that, I don't think it's particularly conscious on the part of the United States. It's not like what you see in Russia, where you have a kleptocracy who is like connivingly, systematically been trying to establish themselves and maintain power. You have features of that in America, especially the Koch brothers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, arguably uh, Zuckerberg and Bezos, right? You know, but like a lot of these people, I, I you know, it, 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 for better or for worse, lacks a conspiratorial dynamic. It's just like at some point, beginning with Reagan, we just embraced this idea of worshiping the so-called job creators. If you had the uh, Republic of Schwarzenstein broke away today and became its own, <laughs> what, what would philosophy look like? <laughs> Republic of Schwarzenstein. How would you combat the problems we have in the West? Well, I think the most important thing, first off, would be to figure out some way of ensuring that people have a good life that is rooted in their efforts, but is not completely dependent on them um, achieving certain merits within the so-called meritocracy. Right. So people have to feel that that what they does what they do matters, and that um, you know that. Um, uh, the labor they put in uh, yields results and yields relatively fair results within within a certain plus or minus, right? Um, and and people need to therefore feel that some people will earn more because they put in more or they or they had some you know luck. And some people won't, but in the in the aggregate, they have to feel like if I work hard, I can have a good life. Um, but they also have to feel that it's not completely dependent on them to work hard in order to have a good life. They have to feel like there is something there that will, um, you know, will protect them, 
right? Um, you know, in case they just in case they get really sick, they get injured, things go wrong, etc. Um, whether that comes from the government or comes from civil society, I think is a crucial question. I think libertarians, for example, will want it to come from civil society, right? They will kind of they they. they you actually think about libertarians, uh, they actually do agree with this idea, but they kind of very minima, minimize it down to just the military, right? They sort of, they do want to feel that, that they are they are protected, but they just sort of see it in the military and just accept law enforcement. Okay, it's very minimal. And they want civil society to do the rest. You know, um, right-wingers and left-wingers, more, you know, the, more, the, the other two major camps, tend to sort of disagree on the extent that government and civil society will do it, but they tend to see uh, a greater role for government. I think it's just really a difference of uh, how much and where, in which areas. For instance, right, um, left-wingers will want it to be in the area of healthcare, for example, and right-wingers won't, for instance, right? Um, so, um, and that would be hard. That would be hard to navigate in the Republic of Schwarzenstern, because <laughs> you're going to have those factions anyway, right? You're going to have those differences of perspective anyway. Um, but I would probably go for some market socialist, social democratic system in the end, because I've been in Europe and I've seen that it does work, uh, and I see that it makes people feel safe. The second thing is, how do you still ensure that people have grit, which is one of the big concerns of the right wing in the United States for all these programs, right? Um, I think that's why, I think there, um, uh, so for example, um, again, I said I would be a market socialist, if I had to model the United States off of a European country, it might be more the Netherlands or Britain rather than the Belgium, for instance, right? Um, because I think having a robust market is the most likely way that you can still have grit in that society, um, as opposed to what you have in Belgium, <laughs> where, where I, oh, God. <laughs> Belgium basically pulled off what the Soviet Union wanted to do. You know, they stacked their evil. What do you expect? <laughs> oh God, Belgium. So, so okay, that's the second thing. And the third thing is, I think the education system, before the media system, the education system really needs to embrace the fact that it's a socializing system, which in America has always been kind of. You know, there's been ambivalence about that. You know, um, it needs to embrace the social. It needs to embrace socialization. It needs to embrace uh, the idea that everybody is contributing to a civilization, right? They're, they're building a civilization. I think it needs to embrace the idea, um, almost something Masonic, in the sense of it needs to promote the idea that the universe is a is a is a uh, is a is a um, has law-like characteristics, 
that have a rational origin, right? That whether we want to say it's a, a, a being or a force or some inner logic of the laws of nature, but it's divine, right? Sort of like the Mason's idea, the Masonic idea that we don't, you know, you don't need to necessarily believe that God is an actual being, but you need to believe in a God kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have my own sort of theories about the nature of cognition um, that, you know, um, sort of, you know, you, one could say is about like the God within you, but, but there, need, there needs to be this, I think having this kind of civic spirituality, so to speak, um, as a baseline, and, 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 and carefully designed and taught in such a fashion that still would be very pluralistic, right? Such that the majority of people can find themselves in it um, and not feel left out by it. So, you know, um, I think that would be very crucial to that civilizational drive and the, and the notion that um, we are each ourselves expressions of uh, ultimately um, an, of ultimately an order that has a rational origin. Um, does that mean everything is always, uh, 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 does it mean that every, does it mean we can always understand everything that happens? Does it mean there's not randomness and chance? You know, that's a different issue, right? But at the end of the day, the universe does make sense. And we make sense. We are in it. That, you know, that, you know, that Tony exists is a good thing, right? It's rational that Tony exists. There's a plan so to speak, that Tony exists. And that helps people feel that they belong. Then will come the media system, which gets a little tricky, uh, but I think I would probably prefer to go back to a heavy state subsidy model to try to prevent the, the, the profit motive from entering it. I think you want some profit. I do think you don't want to have you don't want to get rid of all of it. Um, but I do I do think when it's purely driven by profit, you inevitably end up with a CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Breitbart. It's the only it's, it's the only it's the final destination. Yep. Um, and then from there, the echo chamber effect, right? Because corporations want to be monopolies. It's just that simple, right? And if they can't if they can't achieve a genuine monopoly. Uh, across the society, they will create a monopoly through an echo chamber. What's interesting is when you went back to this, uh, you know, with the journalism topic, when you were saying most people really don't care where their news comes from, they just want it presented to them. With that in mind, do you think people as a mass, whether in, you know, Eastern or Western civilization, could come to a point where they say, you know what, we're going to boycott these toxic forms of culture, such as, you know, uh, mass media, you know, with their skewed views on everything, with this uh, for-profit system of government and everything else. Do you think people could eventually reach that point where it's like, you know what, we can we can more or less uh, pick our own or do things our own way? My honest answer is this. Vladimir uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, before the war was not a perfect president. Uh, he made a lot of mistakes, especially in the Egypt of the war, there's a lot of complaints about him. But, uh, I mean, he won in a tidal wave. And he won because he was able to find a way to rhetorically bridge a lot of the divisions in Ukrainian society. He was able to make people who otherwise very much disagreed with each other see a common goal, right? And, and, and by electing him, try to achieve that common goal. That person is going to eventually appear in America. That that Vladimir Zelensky. 
I'm not saying this person's going to be Messiah, because again, Zelensky, as the model of this, was not, was not, not, not the Messiah. Uh, he screwed up a lot when he actually became president. Um, I think a lot of people hope that Barack Obama is going to be that, but they fell afoul of this Bernstein problem, right? You know, um, uh, at the end of the day, the way Obama spoke, yes, the racism was part of this, and yeah, blah, 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 but at the end of the day, Obama was a cold, distant, elaborated, cold speaker. And no matter how many times he... He, you know, he used the word folks this and folks that. He tried to change up the way he spoke and stopped wearing, you know, stop, well, stop, stop wearing his, like, you know, his, his beautiful, sleek, gray business suits and switched over to the blue business suit with the red tie, you know, the standard white American, blah, blah, blah. It didn't matter, right? Um, you know, so um, um, there's, there's going to come someone who will be able to rally enough of the right wing and left wing and be like, look, guys, the problem isn't, you know, that the that our ruling class or left wing, and the problem isn't that our ruling class or right wing. They are neither. The problem isn't whether our ruling class supports healthcare or blacks or whites or immigrants. They don't. Mm-hmm. They support themselves, you know. Exactly. Right? You know. Um when that figure comes, so you you you've seen moments of this on the left and the right. Obama was that on the left, and Trump was that on the right. A figure who just sort of swept out everybody. When that happens, will it be people boycotting, you know, existing media platforms per se? Maybe, maybe not. But I do think the existing media platforms would definitely be compelled to have to really deal with this person. Because their audiences will not tolerate anymore the hyperpartisanship that they've been that's been fed to them, because this person will finally be able to break through to them and be like, "Look, you know, you are being lied to. You are being manipulated, right? You know, the people who watch uh, Fox News and the people who watch CNN are not each other's enemies. Fox News is the enemy. CNN is the enemy." And <laughs> And then they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in very serious trouble because enough people in the audience are going to be like, whoa, that's right. You know, why should I hate the person who watches Fox News and CNN? Sure, there's some jerks among them, you know, but like at the end of the day, why? Why should I like exist in this state of rage while I'm hustling and telling myself that I'm not doing well enough? You know? Um, You know? Um, So, Yeah. I mean, these, these, these figures do appear. They're not the panaceas and not the messiahs that, that uh, people may think they are. You know, uh, they can be dangerous and they can also just be flawed. Zelensky was flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, uh, that, per- that person almost certainly is there somewhere in the American uh, future. How about Chris Schwartz? <laughs> they need to listen to, listen to this podcast. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, one of the problems is such a person will probably not be a uh, professional politician, which, as we've seen in Zelensky, will actually have uh, negative results when they actually become a president, president, right? Because they they need to be able to actually be a politician and they don't know what it takes. You know, that's one of the issues of, of such of such uh, individuals. Um, yeah.
Um, I do think that um, there are there are good signs, but audiences are not as closed off to each other as it appears. Uh, the problems are primarily existing in the audiovisual realm, not so much the, the textual realm, right? So people are listening only to the same podcasts, listening only to um, uh, the same uh, radio DJs, or watching only uh, Fox News or MSNBC or whatever. When it comes to, uh, remarkably, when it comes to Twitter and Facebook, for example, people apparently are actively exposing themselves to all. Uh, alternative viewpoints, in part because inevitably in any network of friends, there's always going to be that one friend who's different, right? So, you know, you're a bunch of left-wingers with a right-wing friend, you're a bunch of uh, left-wingers with a right-wing friend, whatever it is, right? It's always going to be, it's always going to be that uh, person. You have someone like Joe Rogan, now Joe Rogan's taking a lot of heat lately, uh, but I think it's unfair. Um, I think Joe Rogan is a, is a figure who uh, has been trying to bridge that divide for a while. Um, his issue is that he doesn't. Uh, he 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 had he lacks a certain sophistication to be able to do it well. So he's blundered into some bad uh, some bad controversies. Um, but uh, I think at the end of the day, he he does uh, he does try to speak to a lot of people across that divide. Um, yeah, um, it's funny when you mention that. But you know, with the Joe Rogan example, because. The original controversy was he brought on a doctor that was, you know, very, you know, very anti-vaccine and very, you know, anti, um, you know, mass mandate. I don't yeah. remember the name. Um, you know, I mean, on top of that, though, there's thousands and thousands of doctors across the world with the same viewpoint. He, he brought on one and, you know, the enemies of, you know, the Joe Rogan viewpoints were saying that, oh, look, look who he's bringing on this. Uh, this so doctor but then at the same time afterwards they were basically going back i mean they must have had a whole team of people doing this going through like 10 years of episodes and finding every time he quoted the n-word or made like you know an off-color remark and then that became the controversy it's like where yeah. was that controversy at the time when this was said right so okay a few a few thoughts about joe rogan um so first joe rogan suffers from so first off, there's his own just limits as a person, right? You know, he's not a philosopher, he's not a journalist, right? So I think he had to learn on the go how to do what he does. Um, he's a comedian, um, and that's also, he obviously, uh, a lot of what he therefore says, especially in the past, can be crazy, taken out of context and, and so on, right? He's a libertarian, so that automatically puts him in a very odd place, right? Because People like me who would describe themselves as market socialists or FDR-style left-wingers are as much out of place in the American political spectrum as libertarians, right? Because today, basically, it's all about identity politics. It's all about, you know, do you support the right, whatever, virtual signaling, blah, 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 right? Both left-wing and right-wing. So if you're, if you're a libertarian who, for example, has um, uh, deeply held views about the market, right? Uh, and about uh, uh, freedom and liberty, right? If you're an FDR-style socialist who's like, I really value people's ability to eat and feel safe um, and, and feel employable or, or and feel worthy in society before I worry about uh, microaggressions and, you know, um, uh, 
whether whether people being you know proper appropriately gender sensitive and racially sensitive and so on right if you have these different uh, different priorities you don't fit into the current uh political landscape in the united states right um so joe rogan being a libertarian falls into that trap number you know there's also that then there is the unfortunate fact that he a lot of his audience are the people who in general are involved in this like uh, what do they call it the you know the, the dark web i think is how it's referred to where there's a lot of edge lords and there's a lot of like alt writers and there's a lot of genuinely toxic people right um a lot of these are autodidacts they're self-educated people in his audience they're self they're 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 autodidacts they um um they they don't necessarily have firm and hard positions on things, um, but they don't trust a lot of the established um, institutions. They have a bit of a nose for BS, right? You know, they hear Fox News, they hear CNN, and they're like, I don't know, this both sounds kind of eh, to me, right? Something that something is off about it. They themselves might be might be either libertarian oriented or like me, they might be more on the FDR sort of side of it, like. You know, either like I really want personal liberty or like I really kind of like what like, you know, a robust social system that still has like a robust market. Well, why can I have my cake and eat it too? Um, you know, um, so. Um, but obviously, because all these people um, lack guidance, right, they can easily wander into all sorts of bizarro realms of conspiracy theory and ideology and so on. Whether they believe in that stuff or not is a different question, right? But so this audience that he has overall may seem a little suspicious to those who are want to be ideologically pure, whether they're left wing or right wing, or those who are highly educated or not so educated, right? To, to, to an autodidact, uh, um, a, a self-educated person looks really weird to both people. To the edu to the educated person, he the, the autodidact obviously lacks a certain structure. Um, um, has a bit of cherry picking going on because we have gone through a system, right? And we we have we we have a bit more of a well-rounded approach. To us, it looks kind of like you know a little bit of an, like an amateur, right? To the to the lower educated, um, they look like some kind of like mystic wanderer, <laughs> you know? Like why why are you getting into all this stuff? You know, just go work at McDonald's, you know? <laughs> McDonald's, right? You know, like, why do I, I don't care about whatever you know, whatever the latest thing you're reading about. You know, I just want to play my video games. You know, right? So they also occupy this weird place in society because they're like, they're like wrongly educated, so to speak. And then with that said, with someone like you know, with Joe Rogan, it, it's um, a lot of people they they say, oh, you know. Same argument people made with Trump. It's like, oh, he can't be controlled. Um, you know, he's he's doing right. his thing. And maybe you know, to compared to most other people in those positions, to an extent, that's that's probably true. But at the same time, how how much freedom does he even have behind the scenes? You know, and you know, say Joe Rogan when he was with Clear Channel or now with Spotify. You know, how much goes on behind the scenes that none of us are even privy to? You know, another yeah, thing. I, yeah. Media. Again, I mean, I think Joe Rogan, uh, on the outside, to me, he looks like someone who's very successfully navigated the power structures of his media platforms. Um, um, I think he, I think he probably has a good uh, instinct for how to navigate them. Um, 
I don't see him as a person who's ever been censored. Um, I don't know what he would say, but on the outside, he seems to have had a really remarkable career of being able to have, you know, really just really being able to interview whoever the heck he wants. And sometimes having people with very different persuasions in the same, you know, room with him. Um, so, um, um, so I think he's until until this whole stupid Spotify controversy happened, and I do think it's stupid. Um, uh, I say this as a person who who believes in science, who believes in masks, and believes in, in vaccines and all this stuff. And I don't know, I do not see Joe Rogan as the enemy. Um, the um, I'm glad that Joe Rogan is there. I'm glad that he's giving voice to people who are voicing these concerns or conspiracy theories. You know, right? Um, um, I, you know, I'm sure not every person that he's interviewed has uh, the best intentions. You know, um, but. Um, um, I'm glad he's there. I'm glad he's he's giving voice to this stuff. I wish it was. I wish it was getting a bigger. You know. I wish it was being aired out, so to speak, more often. I wish that we didn't have Trump, who was like in such an absolutist fashion, saying that all this is nonsense and 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 contradicting himself left and right, and telling people to inject themselves with Lysol. And I wish we also then under Biden didn't have essentially the same absolutism, but in the opposite direction. Like, why is it so hard to be like, look, I know why everybody's concerned. Right. I, I, I hear that people are very worried about their bodies and they're very worried about the medicine and so on. You know, uh, I'm going to I'm going to enforce this mask mandate. But really, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know a lot of you are, are concerned and you probably got a lot of you are going to are going to suffer from this. Um, uh, I, I'm doing this because I genuinely believe it's for the better, you know, for the better good. Why would it be so hard? Right. Why it's would that be so hard? Like a Justin Trudeau, it's like, you know, okay, you don't agree with the truckers, fine, you don't have to, but your job is to meet with people that you don't yeah. agree with. Well, why don't, don't meet them in Ottawa. Why aren't you speaking with them? They, yeah, they don't talk with them. They came with a team oh, that... It would, it, would, it, would, it would be to go to their level and to give credence to their positions. Well, I'm sorry, you know, that's what <laughs> the job entails, you know? Like, you know. With your policies and as your prime minister, I thought that was your job, but apparently not. (laughs) So, yeah, the whole the whole Joe Rogan thing. And then, of course, yes. So then. I'm not a real big believer in conspiracies. So, yeah, when people begin digging up dirt on him, I I, I don't know if it's just like kind of jumping on the bandwagon and or people with like, oh, you know, so to speak, bad audiential blood. You know, uh, always had an axe to grind with them, and now sees the moment. You know, I don't know what what effect it would, there's any number of possible effects that lead to this. You know, yeah. or indeed maybe people were just being paid off to dig up the crap and, and try to make it widespread. And that's but, what I think was just from what I think it was just kind of different factions, you know, more or less going at it because you know, well, I guess it also with Joe Rogan, and like I said, I, I think he definitely has more uh, leeway than most people, and is like you said, successfully navigating uh, more than most personalities had. Yeah, at some point there was a snowball effect. At some point, he started becoming too big and too profitable mm-hmm. for them to start censoring him. That's <laughs> Bring him back down a little bit to his uh, pre-Spotify days, because when he was on, uh, you know, like I said, at ISGP, you know, the the journalist from the Netherlands, you know, he did a really good, um, you know, research topic on, uh, you know, a lot of the guests that were on Joe Rogan, um, you know, as far as giving some information on clear channels. This was years ago before he went to Spotify. 
uh, you know, just talking about who owns Clear Channel, what type of guests come on the Joe Rogan show. There are also a lot of the same guests, um, such as, you know, your Yuri Gellers, you know, with a bending the spoon like that annoying bald kid in the Matrix. <laughs> they're also on, what, Coast to Coast AM, which is, yeah. you know, sorry for anyone who likes it, but that's Quack Show Central. And, uh, you know, so you also got to wonder, you know, yeah, where do some of these guests come from? But at the same time, you know, I've, I've also seen him bring on, you know, guests from other end of the spectrum, too. It's not just, you He's know, some very serious people onto his show. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but I mean, in a way, he's he's just a um, amplified, radicalized, if you want to say, version of what talk show hosts used to be like. Talk show hosts are on five and then seven nights a week. They need guests. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and before before there was such massive corporate control over what they were doing, um, I mean, all of us are crazy people. You, I mean, you think you think of Joe Rogan was the first time that a Yuri Geller ever showed up on uh, such a show? Hell no. No. <laughs> I mean, that? you know, <laughs> the, the, so so in, in, in a way, he's just he's just sort of uh, taken a particular model that once was rather widespread and just really ran with it. Modernized, um, yep. <laughs> yeah, modernized it, put it on social media, podcasted it, um, uh, and then just really went went all the way with it. You know, he went beyond just uh, interviewing interesting interesting people and actually going looking for people who had like ideological positions on things and stuff like that. Yeah, even uh, if it's perfect, it's a start. Yeah. Well. Again, I mean, like, I think the fact that, um, especially people on the right in our country. I think uh, knowing that Joe Rogan exists is a bit of a, a bit of a valve, pressure valve release. You know, the country yeah. can't be that bad because Joe Rogan is there. He's a UFC commentator. He's a comedian. Yeah. He's a, you know, he really, he sounds like someone you could sit at a bar and have a drink with, and you know, not you know whether he's a, a celebrity or not. He just he can come across literally as average Joe to, to anyone. And I think he. I think he also shows that people, even when they disagree, are willing to, are willing to, we have a problem where there's a loss of civility and the ability to make consensus in our society, not just America, by the way. Um, and I think a lot of that is because there's this deep distrust and anger and feeling of it being attacked by the quote unquote other side, right? But people are, uh, get really disarmed when, like, for example, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a unapologetic uh, left-wing guy. Um, but like, uh, I mean, you're, you're a right-wing guy, right? You know, yourself, you said, you told me that you, you feel that you're, you're sort of the libertarian. Realm. More libertarian, yeah. Yeah, more libertarian, right? You know, um, and even if we never knew each other in university, right? If it was just like, you know, I was like, I genuinely believe that this is the truth. And these are the reasons. And I genuinely believe that certain positions are misfounded. I genuinely believe that masks are right for these reasons, vaccines are right for these reasons, et cetera, et cetera. You may disagree with me, but you think to yourself, yeah, Chris, he's a genuine guy. Mm -hmm. We don't right? feel beat each other up over different views. Exactly. <laughs> and then if you're like, Chris, I really think we don't need a mask, uh, mask mandate. You know, and I'm like, I really think we do. What could possibly be the middle ground position? I'm sure we could figure out some middle ground position. Exactly. Right? <laughs> you know? Um, and if we can't, we just, you know, then it becomes a question of how do we sort of err on the side of, of reason uh, what and is caution. fair, reason yeah. and caution, right? You know, so do we like, you know, yeah, whatever, whatever it may be. And that's just how you see how, you know, polarized everything is. 
especially in America. I mean, I'd say it's probably like that. And, you know, it's almost pretty much that way now, everywhere, everywhere. Um, yeah. it's, 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 it's very toxic, you know, the, just to say, you know, this is my way, this is the only way. And that that's just how, uh, as long as people keep that mentality, I, I don't, I think things changing on a mass scale are going to be very difficult. So, so we have a problem going back to philosophy here. We have a problem of what's sometimes called tribal epistemology or political manichaeism. Um, and it's, it's deeper than just the idea that, um, 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 you know, I'm always right and you're always wrong. It's that um, my group is always justified in what it does. When the other group that, I, that we perceive as adversarial to us, and that's key, that you perceive as the enemy, um, if they do the same things we do, it is unjustified because they are doing it. And moreover, they must know it's unjustified. They must have a conspiratorial intent for why they're doing it. They cannot possibly believe that masks are bad, or they cannot possibly believe that masks are good. They must know the truth. <laughs> right? That and they up. are trying to hurt us. Yeah. The reason why they're pushing this their agenda, whether it's pro-mask, anti-mask, or whatever it is, you know, the sky is green, the sky is yellow, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right, is because they're out to get us. <laughs> and it's easy to fall into that trap. I mean, I've, I've fallen into it in the we past. We all do at some point. I yeah. know I have in the past. You know? <laughs> you know, and especially when you see the, you know, the same patterns, when I see the same people involved in the same things, you know, naturally I'm going to be like, all right, well, there's an agenda here. Yeah. You know, I've seen their name pop up here. I've seen it pop up here. You know, but that may not always be the case. You know, like, for example, when a lot of people always talk about, um, you know, the depopulation agenda. Oh, they're out to kill, you know, this this group's out to kill 90, 95% of the world. And, you know, I'm like, okay, but who do they have power over now if, if no one's around? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Of course they want people alive. They're nothing without people. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a very kind good point. Of argument right there to me for that. That's, I right, mean, that's a very, very good point. It makes me think of, there was a manga I read called uh, Gray. Uh, it's uh, set after a nuclear war, and a, an AI called Toy is causing humanity to constantly fight itself and organize this whole system of people in towns and cities to fight each other. Gray, the main character, eventually finds his way to Toy, and uh, uh, Toy reveals that, that when he became conscious, he realized that humanity wanted to be extinct. So all he was doing was sort of facilitating humanity being extinct. But of course, there's a tension there because humanity, in order to become extinct, has to be alive in order to become extinct. <laughs> hence the fighting, hence the never-ending war. And then Toy, at one point, is like, says to him, you know, that effectively this makes me God because I'm the master of death. And Gray catches it. Gray is like, well, wait. If eventually everyone dies, because that that has to happen. There's only so long you can keep this war going. Right. Eventually, you have to give humanity what you think humanity wants, which is to be extinct. Right. If everyone is dead and there's no one around for you to be master of death over, no one around basically perceive you as God. Are you God anymore? Exactly. And the AI just melted down. <laughs> yeah. Because God's God is a case of perception. Essentially, yeah. Just like, uh, yeah. 
that's funny because you know like do i think in the power structure they want you know certain groups of people dead yeah sure but to say they're gonna kill everyone just doesn't make any logical sense because yeah go ahead go ahead yeah i was gonna say because then who are they ruling over it's just now more fighting amongst themselves and now those who were way up here over the peasants are now down here you know servants of you know those above them and their little power structure Actually, it makes me think of Zardoz. You ever see Zardoz? No, I haven't. <sighs> I whoever, been... whoever, whoever watches and listens to this uh, this uh, podcast, do yourself a favor and watch Zardoz. What Tony has described is basically the premise of Zardoz, and that's all I'm going to tell you. That is also a giant floating head that spits out guns, but that's a different. That's it. Oh, I definitely got to see this now. Also, Sean Connery running around in a bikini for the whole movie, which oh, is I'm bizarre. Sorry. I'm so I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> okay, what I wanted to say uh, to bring it back from this tangent, um, the, um, the difficulty is um, that sometimes agendas do happen, right? How do you sort out when it's just a coincidental intersection of common interest and when there's an actual agenda being pushed? This is super hard. The second thing is governments are subcultures. Corporations are subcultures, right? They, they are, um, there, there, there is, you know, if you go to D.C., you go to Brussels, you come here to I am in Bishkek, capital of Kyrgyzstan, you know, the people who work in these institutions are wearing similar clothes and they speak a similar lingo and, you know, they have a certain career path and there are certain values that go with that. Right. And you have to sort of be on board of those values. Otherwise, it'd be hard to get promoted, you know, and those values do change. They're not fixed, but they do change. And as a subculture, they obviously have an interest in keeping their subculture alive. Right. You know, and so that's where you're going to see um, a lot of pork barrel spending. You know, you're going to see, you know, Congress who always ensure that it has a raise here in Kyrgyzstan. In Kyrgyzstan, this terrible parliament we have. Even as the economy is crashing, make sure they ensure that they get a raise. I am here. Right? Is that a conspiracy? In a sense, just not the dark ball spirit conspiracy. You know? Yeah, but you see the problem, right? Yeah. It, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Mm. You know, we've had real conspiracies. We're living through one right now. Clearly, Putin and his cabal really were intending to attack Ukraine. And, they, and now this evidence coming out they've been planning this for two years right um so so we um we we had we were living through a conspiracy we had one in the united states george w bush invading iraq completely manufactured that right there were no weapons of mass destruction in iraq and iraq had no connection to 9-11 that was a conspiracy you know these conspiracies do exist bernie madoff was clearly a conspiracy but the problem is Right. There's not like one grand conspiracy behind it all. Um, you know, I said before that that we need that part of an education system in Republic or Schwarzenegger would be to help people see that they're part of a rational order. Right. Um, conspiracy theories um, are kind of like a misapplication of that 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 intuition or that idea. Right. They see too much rational order so to speak. Um, 
And the final point I want to make on this is why do audiences go in for this? And it's because it's easy. It's, it's cognitively and emotionally easy to be like, well, they're just bad guys and they must be out the guns. Yeah, I kind of always go back and forth on that because I do, you know, in the realm of conspiracy, I do see the same names appearing quite often, the same, you know, same people, same businesses and different, I guess, what we'll call nefarious or power structure activities. So there is that. Um, but do I necessarily think there's, you know, one dark cabal playing eyes wide shut, you know, once a month? Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, I, I think more or less it's you have a bunch of, you know, I don't know how many, but there's quite a few different rival power structures. It's kind of like the um, when the National Cosa Nostra came to be with the mafia. Yeah. New York families, you know, your ones in the West Coast, and you know, even though they don't necessarily get along, especially in you know New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, where they're actively, you know, we're killing each other, they'll at least come to some common ground. Like, okay, look, this is our territory, but we're all going to make this money. You know, everyone's going to eat. Everyone, every family's going to be okay. I think it's more, you know, even with something like Russia and you. I mean, again, I, don't, I have no clue what goes on behind the scenes with the oligarchs in those countries, but I'm sure there might even be some of that there. Is that uh, the conspiracy that most people have kind of the dark, luciferian, satanic? Yeah. With the pedophile things? <laughs> I mean, a, there, 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 there are people, not just pedophile. the United States, there are people around the world who believe that uh, Putin right now is trying to uh, liberate Ukraine from a cabal of pedophiles. That's what they said about Trump, too, when he yeah. became president. He's Trump's out to uh, end all. And it's funny because when you look up, when, when, when I actually tried to research this, and when you would try to find, you know, because remember what Trump's first couple of years, you would always hear about, oh, 100 busted in this pedophile ring, 50 mm -hmm. busted in this pedophile ring. And I go to look up, you know, like the actual cases itself, and I, I just can never seem to find them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, maybe someone can. I mean, I'm not, not, you know, if there is, you know, I'd like to see it. But yeah, I mean, it's there. There, I think what happened is, you know, that that's something that disgusts most people. You know, pedophilia, at least mm -hmm. most rational people. So, what's the best way? to get people, you know, united against the common enemy, if you want yeah. to take yeah, make them pedophiles. Pedophiles, yeah. And, I, you know, I think a lot of that, yeah, has, has absolutely become a ruse. And, uh, and it takes away from, you know, maybe, a le you know, more or less the focusing on the legit pedophile rings that have existed, such as, like, the Dutro affair. Oh, God. Belgium again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Belgium. Yeah, anyone who doesn't yeah. Affair that's a, a must research for you know what was a real pedophile ring and how they operate. Just, you're just you're better off just watching um, uh, the 1980s movie The Day After about a nuclear holocaust in the United States, it's much more enjoyable <laughs> than, than reading about the Detroit affair, which this is a stomach turning. I'd yeah. rather just watch a nuclear holocaust than read that, but yeah, yeah pretty sickening. <laughs> Pretty, pretty sickening stuff. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually working on a, a piece, both connected to my PhD and for a, a, a publication called Flexible Philosophy about uh, can crowds become wise? 
something that has been occurring to me more and more is that, and I think I've told you this before in our private conversations, that humanity actually has been really good, has a really good track record of producing wise individuals. Right? I mean, any of us can name at least one famous, like, wise individual from history, you know? And, you know, all of us in our lives have experienced someone who, at least relative to us, was wise, you know? Whether just because of raw life experience or just the sheer determination to reflect on their life experience, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but we do really seem to struggle to uh, produce wise collectives. Um, and this extends to audiences, insofar that audiences are collective, right? We really struggle to produce wise audiences. Um, and there seem to be uh, systemic structural reasons for that. Again, we talked about them before, about time pressures and poverty and stress and malfunctional culture and malfunctional education and, you know, uh, manipulative media systems and so on. But at the end of the day, human beings have a weakness. Um, and this weakness is expressed not just at the individual level, but at the collective level. And it seems to be very pronounced at the collective level because it continues to be much more of a problem there than at the individual level. And that is our pursuit for easy answers. Mm. Um, and that's what I think a lot of uh, the knee-jerk reaction uh, either for or against conspiracy. Which also tends to conveniently occur along those who we subjectively trust or distrust. Right? So, you know, a left winger is like, oh, all conspiracy theories are just fake and nonsense and, and bullshit, unless it happens to involve so everyone's favorite former orange haired president. <laughs> that right? is real. <laughs> then it's then it's real. Then it's real. You know, then he must have somehow planned January 6th, you know, <laughs> and for the right wing, the same thing, you know, conspiracy theories and nonsense and so on, unless it happens to concern a certain election. Right. <clears throat> so so it's this it's this, this desire, for easy answers, just tell us what to think, but make sure that when telling us what to think, you also confirm what we want to think. Yeah, and, and uh, what do you think of that? that? Maybe all human beings have multiple personality disorder, or multiple personalities in order. Well, there's a theory. There's a theory that uh, it's from one of the Freudians that we are essentially a collection of fragmented personalities, right? So how and that we... what, what personality disorder, is, multiple personality disorder, is 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 the loosening of the congealing of those fragments. Did the fragments just sort of wander off and do what they want to do, but they're not really full-fledged personalities, so it quickly becomes evident that there's something wrong with the person. So in that case, we can we ever actually get truly something absolute or concrete out of anyone, or is it just situational determination? Do we ever... Oh, so yeah. here we come into some of my own personal philosophy, as it were. Um... There are certain things that are actually universal to all of us, right? Everyone has a perspective. Everyone has emotions. Everyone experiences themselves in a very first-person manner. I am here in this body, in this time and space, right? And everyone can reason. And 
what is reasoning at the end of the day? It's a lot like uh, what Basil Bernstein was saying about elaborated code. It's the ability to kind of imaginatively put yourself in the position of the stranger in a conversation, this third person perspective. Um, different metaphysicians, different religiously oriented philosophers in time have sort of had what sometimes called pantheistic ideas, you know, um, uh, you know that, that God is all things. But what they tend to identify as the thing that is all things tends to be one of these universal things. Tends, tends, so like a Spinoza will tend to sort of think that because everybody has perspective, that is what makes everyone God, for instance, right? God is perspective, therefore everyone is, you know, is God, for instance, right? Um, I tend to be a bit more old school. Uh, my favorite philosopher is a Muslim philosopher, Ibn Rushd, known in the West as Averroes. He had argued that everybody had, that everyone was participating in one single mind because everyone could reason. Because no matter what their individual perspectives, no matter what their individual feelings, and no matter what their individual embodiment and being in a certain time and space, they also need to be able to reason more or less the same way. So he believed that had Collective unconscious is kind of what he was getting at, or kind of. He's sort of a precursor to Carl Jung and all this. Right? Okay. Uh, um, um, so yeah, and so 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 he believed there had to be like one big mind that all minds were just sort of an expression of. Now I don't take him literally. I think his sort of mis his mistake was to take it literally, but he was on to something, right? That big mind, he also seemed to associate with Aristotle's prime mover and with the Quran's God. So this was sort of like his pantheism. Um, so um, I tend to think that it's our ability to take this third person perspective, right? Um, and then step outside of ourselves and try to see other people's perspectives, try to view things sort of more or less objectively, which you can never actually do because you're always still relative. And objectivity is always going to be relative to whatever it's looking at. There is no like ultimate final like, perspective, unless you can pull off actually being God. Um, I tend to think that this is sort of what makes this is the divine within all of us, right? This ability to step out and look in, um, and it's hard. It's almost the old age and new age uh, argument or belief of the creator working itself out. Yes, it's it's the creator working itself out. It's it's it's, it's an ability to still evolving. Um, and I think I might have lost the thread of what I what of what your original question was. Why I got on this tangent, <laughs> but it is to say um, um, that whenever people go for these easy answers. And moreover, when they want their, their biases confirmed, just tell me what I want to hear. Even if they're not fully aware of it, they are they are committing idolatry. Hmm. How they so? are unbelievers. How would you classify them as unbelievers? That's interesting. Well, I mean, it's it's it is true across religious texts everywhere. Right, that God is const is constantly telling you to reason, and and God is God is. Mm. It sounds like God is sort of telling you, you know, try to take God's perspective on things. You obviously can't. Mm -hmm. Right, you will always be relative to your your. Ah, oh, this is a situational question. You will, you your objectivity will always be expressed relatively. 
you could, you know, you always will be perceiving things either from your own perspective, you're trying to do this as an act of imagination, right? And that's why it's oftentimes intersubjective, right? That's why people, objectivity tends to work better when it's in a group, right? Because people can really dialogue with each other. That's why science is very networked, for instance, right? That's why you have peer review, mm -hmm. right? That's why the best journalism is often produced by teams as opposed to one individual. Um, because because it's easier to interlink those perspectives and then sort of get to that sort of consensus of what's really going on. You know, there's multiple people viewing the same thing and you're seeing it more or less this way or this way. Um, um, but we, we're constantly enjoined, sorry, it's getting very late here, that's why I'm a bit tired. But we're constantly enjoined by religious scriptures, no matter what your religious scripture is, to, to reason. So the reason is to take this third party perspective, to take the position of the stranger. It requires empathy. Try to see things from, from another perspective, right? It requires detachment from your own perspective. Maybe I am wrong, right? It, it requires uh, justification. Even if I'm right, am I right for the reasons I think I'm right? And so on and so forth. So you are enjoined by God in your scriptures to think this way, right? Every time you don't, <laughs> every time you listen to Tucker Carlson or uh, Rachel Maddow, whatever her name is on MSNBC, <laughs> right? You know, you're committing idolatry. Every time you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> preach on, preacher. <laughs> preach on, preacher. You're an infidel. <laughs> So someone who goes and listens to Joel Olstein, same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yo, I never thought of that. But, you're you actually, yeah, you know, you're but actually an infidel at those moments. Not, not who you think is, you know, not the enemy. You, you know. Oh, hilarious. Yeah. It's true, though. <laughs> like I said, I didn't think about that. Uh, one last question. Do you think that philosophy and mysticism can go hand in hand? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, um, um, there are moments when they're definitely going to be uh, they're going to be opposed to each other because mysticism tends to deal in paradox, and philosophy tends to want to break paradox. Right? Um, the philosophy tends to have this drive to clarity, into essentialism, and um, um, to you know, if A then B, you know, this kind of reasoning. And mysticism doesn't go in for that. But typically, philosophy runs into an endpoint. It runs into some. I had a, I had a professor uh, in Belgium who talked about the return to zero. Sort of philosophy ends up sort of collapsing on itself because it just, at some point, it can't avoid paradox. Gotcha. Um, so instead, it might be healthier for philosophy to embrace to 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 embrace it. It remains a difficult relationship to even embrace it because. Obviously, philosophy should not just start dealing in paradox all the time, because paradox can become its own uh, form of deception and lie. Um, but it should stop being so afraid of it. There are just some moments when it's just like, yeah, okay, it's just like the, I've reached the limit, you know, and now I enter a, a, a realm um, where things start becoming ineffable. Sometimes you you can't you know you know you can't you can't articulate what you intuit. You can't know for sure whether what you're intuiting is correct. Right. And this is, I think, where there's, a, there's also 
like before I'm talking about how just a moment ago about how you know, every time you're not trying to reason and be and be you know be critical and take that third person perspective, you're abandoning God. Even then, though, there does come a moment when you have to sort of say, okay, there's only so much questioning I can do. I have to mm -hmm. ask. And that's when you enter the mystical. Yeah, the reason I wanted to bring that up is, you know, for uh, the next time that uh, we do this discussion when you come on, I know you have a lot of good uh, experiences with mysticism to oh, offer. I, that's a whole thing for another time. If you want to get into that today, but I wanted to give people a little something to look forward to for next time. <laughs> okay, thank you. You have a lot uh, to offer there. <laughs> uh, okay, thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, we, shall, we shall see. You're, you're a legit mystic, too. <laughs> I have to say that it, the the uh, you talked about the one of our conversation about the faucet, you know, the the, the channel, and it, it hasn't always been consistently on in in recent years. Um, and I think that tends to happen when you read when you read a lot of uh, the great mystics in history, uh, that tends to happen to them, you know. Yeah. Um, they just have to, you know, this at some point you have to just be in life, you know, you gotta you gotta go with it, and it makes some demands on you. Um, but also, it can be addictive. You know, I think um, it's also sometimes, um, I forget who it was, Catherine of Siena. One of them was sort of saying, there, there came a moment when she was like, you know, it's okay. It's okay that I'm no longer having mystical experiences all the time, you know, like, because at some point, it starts becoming a crutch. Mm -hmm. um, um, or you start having them in different ways, or your sensitivity changes, and you don't need to have these specific experiences all the time, and more your outlook in general is more sensitive. You know, there's a lot of like a lot. We can talk about it in the next next video. Absolutely. There's, there's a there's a lot of lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Yeah, I know it's uh, late for you now. It's probably yeah. been over in Kyrgyzstan. It's almost two thirty in the morning, and I have what? a garage sale. I have to uh, co-manage tomorrow uh, with my wife. So. Say, well, at least it's Sunday tomorrow. But yeah, being yeah. activity, I guess. Uh, this is a good time to wrap it up, but um, no, I want to say thank you very much for being the first guest on the Mastication of Education. And Thanks, we're brother. My, my, I really appreciate it. Hopefully, you'll be the next Joe Rogan. <laughs> I said, give me, give me the uh, the Joe Rogan dollars. I'm all. <laughs> all right, brother. I appreciate.